from Stanford University and KZSU. What happened to the skinny dipping? Yes, I have heard about a salamander at Lake Lock. Just one? I mean, multiple salamanders. The salamander problem. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project. Around the second grade, we all learn about the animal kingdom and the different creatures that live on different parts of the world. And in all of this, we come out knowing that somehow we're on top of the heap. You know, Adam, food chain, the wonders of technology. But there comes a moment in all of our lives when something doesn't seem quite right. We're not the smartest, not the wisest, and we're not in charge. You're listening to KZSU Stanford, and this week on the Stanford Storytelling Project season opener, we bring you stories of how animals take charge of our lives. think about animals, we think about how humans have shaped the lives of other species. But this week and next, we're going to look at how they shape us. Today we have four stories and a poem. First, we'll take a trip to Stanford's Lake Lagunita with Rebecca Jacobs and Kalani Liefer. Lake Log was historically a place for sunbathing, skinny dipping, and homecoming bonfires, but now it looks more like a mudflat than a lake. Rebecca and Kalani will tell us a story about a tiny animal who has transformed this Stanford landmark. Second up, Kate Youngman and Tom James, who tell the story of one scientist's proposal to introduce wild animals from the African savanna into the Great Plains of the United States. Third, a vignette by Tracy Shepard about couples, cats, and dogs. Fourth, a story relayed by Hilton Obenzinger about the strange behavior of elephants in Thailand during the tsunami of 2004. And finally, we bring you a poem about fireflies by poet and philosopher Troy Jollymore. I'm Bonnie Swift, and this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. Our first story is about a lake, and how one tiny creature has changed the face of an entire community. one mile around, sandwiched between a university campus and golden foothills. This is Lake Lagunita. Sounds like an ideal place to take out a boat, learn how to windsurf, or, when no one's looking, go skinny dipping. These were the things we expected to find when we came to Stanford. Instead, we noticed something peculiar. Lake Log is empty. Close to it, anyway. We heard about an endangered creature living here. And it's the reason why our lake is empty. It's a log nest monster, if you will. We want to know, what do we owe this creature? And what have we sacrificed for it? We're hunting for answers. Okay. 
Okay, I've actually talked to my dad about this yesterday, who's a Stanford alum, had great memories about Lake Lagunita. Um, he said there were lifeguards there, people were swimming, people were sailing. It was like one of the like centers of the campus. They had big uh, a big rally there before big game. When I applied here, like one of the hugest things that I was like, oh, I'm coming, was the picture of Lake Lagunita right there next to all the dorms. So I was thinking, shoot, man, you know, sunny California, pretty smart kids, a lake to go, you know, play on, fun. Well, as long as I've been at Stanford, Lake Log has pretty much always been an empty mud pit. In my impression, it seems like the entire space is mostly wasted. I was pretty bummed when I found out there was no lake. I think they need to color the thing not blue on the map, make it brown. I don't know if I'd swim in it because that's disgusting, but I definitely would like to windsurf or, or sail on it or even just take a raft out and maybe drink a few beers. And it's kind of a shame it's not filled up. Um, I've heard something about the salamanders, some weird thing. Yes, I have heard about a salamander at Lake Log. Just one? I mean, multiple salamanders. A salamander problem <laughs> at Lake Log, although I don't believe it. The lake isn't full because we don't have enough rain and because there's endangered salamanders that Stanford cares more about than students' happiness. I want the bonfire back because I think that was a great tradition that, and it's silly that stupid salamanders are stopping us from, from having it. I want Lake Lagunita back. Bring back Lake Lagunita! You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. The sentiment runs so deep that last year, one student went so far as to organize a petition to fill the lake. 350 students signed. We want the lake too, but the salamander stands in our way. It's an elusive obstacle. No one we know has ever seen it. So we're going on a salamander hunt. The uh, uh, adults are upwards of six to nine inches total length. A dark bluey black is their base coloration, somewhat a little brown once in a while, with a, a, a random array of little smallish kind of pea-sized yellow golden splotches. Back at Mallard Duck, 12 o'clock. Let's go. Let's go. Oh. I'm not going to make it, Becca. I just lost the shoe. Uh, he's gone. He's off. Uh, we need your help. Back in the 1880s, the railroad tycoon, Governor Leland Stanford, founder of Stanford University, scraped out a corner of his 8,000-acre farm to form Lake Lagunita to irrigate his alfalfa field. Even in its early years, Lake Lagunita functioned more like a sieve than an irrigation pond. It just wouldn't stay full. Stanford purchased 2,000 sheep to stamp out a layer of clay on the lake floor, but the lake still wouldn't fill. In classic robber baron fashion, Sanford bought out the competition, er, his neighbors, and demolished the interfering dams on their property. But nothing, not even questionable business practices, could keep the lake full year-round. Within a few years of the university's founding in 1891, the lake became something that the governor probably never imagined, and certainly had it intended. 
A few good rains filled the basin, and it wasn't long before students started hopping the fence and built Lagunita's first boathouse. Over the years, Lake Log, as it is affectionately known to students, became home to big game bonfires, skinny dipping, windsurfing, and lazy afternoons. You know, that's what you did. You got sat in the sun, you got burned, you got hot, you dove in the water, you swam to the pontoon, you saw who was there, <laughs> and, you know, wished you knew some of the people who were there, let's say, and then you swim back and then pretend to be reading your books. That's my dad, Larry Leifer, class of 62, 63, and 69. I heard this story growing up, and I vividly remember wanting a carbon copy for myself. When I came to Stanford, instead of finding the lake, I found this. Okay, this looks, this looks promising. Okay, there's little things swimming around in here. Let's get right down to it. There's little, not microscopic, they kind of look like miniature lentils. It actually re closely resembles leftover soup. <laughs> so why is this? Why did my dad have this lake and I get leftovers? Like our friends, we have a suspicion that it's the salamander's fault. If a threatened species didn't live in Lake Log, would the lake be full? Would we have our skinny dipping, bonfires, and windsurfing? We decide to go to an expert. Dr. Alan Launer works with the Center for Conservation Biology at Stanford. He's the salamander expert on campus. We ask him, what claim does the salamander have to Lake Lagunita? You gotta remember Stanford was, the first faculty was really heavy on zoologists. David Starr Jordan was a fish guy. Fish guys always poked around water. I almost guarantee you he found salamanders here. He, there's no way he didn't find them here. So we've had people poking around looking for salamanders since the beginning of the university. If the salamander predates the university, then perhaps it has equal or greater claim. But Lake Log was never intended to be a wildlife refuge. And as long as it remains one, the salamander stands in the way of all our traditions. So at this point... What do you think, Becca? Becca, Becca's being left behind. I didn't come this far to not find a salamander. Okay, it's deep now. It is up to my shins. I mean, I guess deep is a relative term. I just saw something move, but it turned out to be a twig. From here I can see, I don't know, at least 15, 20, 20 joggers. Seems to be the one purpose of the lake now. Something to circumnavigate. Unfortunately, the salamander, or the lack thereof, is the only thing, aside from the mallard ducks, who uh, are benefiting from Lake Lagunita. Okay, well this doesn't sit well with us. 
That the salamander has a claim to Lake Log is one thing, but should it have exclusive rights? That's a hard one. That's a hard one to argue. I mean, that they have a kind of a right to exist. Well, that usually only comes up when somebody asks, "What's the purpose of the role? What good is the salamander?" Which the usual response is, "Well, what good are you?" You know, and that kind of puts it in an ethical perspective. They don't usually like it. That usually ends that discussion quickly. Dr. Holmes Rolston III is an esteemed bioethicist at Colorado State University. We spoke with him during his visiting professorship at Yale. Destroying endangered species is like tearing pages out of a book that we hardly know how to read. This is the go-to argument for environmentalists dealing with skeptics, that we can never fully appreciate what benefits a species might bring to humanity. Therefore, it is impossible to comprehend what we would lose by eradicating that species. It's been said that the remedies to all man's ailments can be found in the rainforest. Burn it down, and we may destroy the cure for cancer along with it. On ethical grounds, we can't justify ignoring our duties to the salamander. Even though Lake Lagunita is a man-made lake, hardly a rainforest, who knows what the little amphibian living there could do for us in the future. Perhaps it's even doing something for us now. I mean, I don't know how many kids we've had do honors projects and independent research on salamanders. You know, it's, it's a valuable, very valuable uh, resource for the university is to have, have that right there for, for kids to roll out, cost them nothing, and they can do it. They don't have to fly to Costa Rica, although that's fun. So why the bad rap? Students perceive the salamander as the sole perpetrator in the disappearance of our traditions. Even now, we still can't help but wonder, what happened to the skinny dipping? What happened to the bonfire? It had a whole bunch of strikes against it. The last one, which was the one that got the big press, was a salamander. I've never seen the university act so fast on a conservation issue before in my life, and never have since. It's like, oh yeah, we've got to save the salamander, cut the bonfire out. Uh, yeah, the salamander took the heat on the bonfire, no pun intended. They contributed to it, but it wasn't really the main factor. Whether or not there's any merit to the accusations, the salamander is taking the blame for the loss of traditions. Does our duty to the salamander outweigh what we lose? Dr. Rolston thinks it does. Anything I can imagine you might be giving up on this uh, local lake, yes. Your duty to the salamander would outweigh any pleasure that I can imagine that you might enjoy there. But what if you don't subscribe to this sense of duty? Dr. Launer has something to say to that. The only reason the thing has water in it is because of salamanders. Uh, the reason it's not filled to the brim anymore on any regular, regular basis, two reasons. The dam, and I don't want to panic people, but it's not the most sturdy thing. Wait a second, the salamander has nothing to do with it? It turns out there are a few reasons why the lake isn't full. For one, the dam can't be trusted to withstand all 118 million gallons of water that Lake Log can hold. That, and the simple fact that it never rains enough. But back when my dad went to Stanford, the dam was just as shoddy and it rained just as little. So what gives? The university is no longer allowed to divert enough water from the local creek to supplement rainfall. It's no longer allowed because the salamander isn't the only local species that's been listed as threatened. The steelhead trout, resident of said creek, holds claims to that water. What little water reaches Lake Log during a dry spell 
comes at the trout's expense and for the sake of the salamander. Now we have to look at the situation a little differently. What would our world look like if it weren't for the salamander? Without him, the lake bed would be completely dry, or worse, the foundation of Stanford's next engineering quad. To eager developers, Lake Laganita is the ultimate building site. Large numbers of salamanders get squished on Interpreter Boulevard when it's uh, migration season. In the late 90s, when we, the last time we had some really good migrations, you get those when the weather is just perfect and it all comes at once. We would have uh, like 300 squished ones out there and another you know, 300 live ones we saw. And, uh, you know, it's just pretty big carnage. After all this, the salamander turns out to be on our side. A spring of potential academic discoveries, as well as the guardian of our beloved open spaces. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? They paradise, put up a parking lot. Outside the paradise of Lake Laganita, a legal battle is raging. In 2005, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services determined that critical habitats, protected areas for the California tiger salamander, are no longer conducive or necessary for restoration. Fish and Wildlife released a final rule, cutting the salamander's protected habitat by nearly half. Fortunately, this past summer, a federal judge in San Francisco overturned the Fish and Wildlife Service's brash move. It would seem that we have some friends in high places, and that for the salamander, at least, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. When we started, we were asking, why are we sacrificing the lake for the salamander? Now we want to know, what more can we sacrifice? Five years ago, Stanford University constructed three tunnels of love under the local expressway at $20,000 apiece so that the salamanders could safely reach their mating spot, our very own Lake Laganita. So I say, I say we go check out these tunnels of love. What do you say? And then I say we call it a day. I say, let's go. Why don't we do it in the road? Okay, okay, we have, um... We found the, we tunnel found of the tunnels of love. They are nothing like what we thought they would be like. We've got... Okay. Okay, this is cool. This is really cool. We did not expect to find them or that they would look like this. Okay, okay. so basically, we're on the non-Lake Laganita side of Unipracera. We're at the base of the foothills, um, right up against the edge of the highway. You can... You can hear what the, the salamanders are up against if it weren't for these tunnels. So take a moment to appreciate what these salamanders go through every mating cycle. They have to deal with traffic. Okay, so we are here. They're cement blocks. They look ventilated. If you look Actually, I read about this. There are sunroofs the entire way across the tunnel so that the, the salamander doesn't lose its way. It has to believe that there's another side. Otherwise, it won't, it won't even attempt to enter. The tunnels of love, they're not perfect. They're kind of narrow and a little impractical. They're filled with prickly oak leaves that can't possibly feel good on a salamander's slithery stomach. 
but they do allow the salamander to come and go from the lake freely. The more nearly the saving of it can allow it to continue as it evolved and on its own, the better I like it, and the less it's more like saving uh, some wild fish in a goldfish bowl. Oh my god. Trojan ultra thin wrapper under the tunnel of love. In the tunnel of love. The salamanders practice safe sex. I guess that's the idea behind the tunnel of love. No one will be watching us. Why don't we do it in the road? Let's take a look through this tunnel. So, Do you see anything in there? Yeah, I can see the other side quite clearly, actually. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. There is definitely light at the end of the tunnel for the salamander. I don't know if I can make it through here. I'm not going to try. But um, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. I don't see a salamander, though. If we were ever going to find a salamander, it would be... In the tunnel of love. In the tunnel of love. Now imagine hearing that as a salamander. We're going to play the sounds of the highway from inside the tunnel. This is what the salamander hears. We didn't get the lake back. We didn't bring back the bonfires, the skinny dipping, or the windsurfing. But we found out that the salamander needs Lagunita more than we ever wanted a watering hole. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometime, it's just my fine. It's just my fine. You what you need. We thought the salamander was the reason why the lake is empty. Ironically, the salamander is the only reason the lake's not full of buildings, which makes us wonder how many other cases are out there where an endangered species is the only thing standing between this and this. Lake Lagunita, at one mile around, has one such case. We have a sneaking suspicion that an area of comparable size in the rainforest might have an infinite number. Our next story is a documentary about one scientist's plan to restore the ecosystem in the American Great Plains. Kate Youngman and Tom James tell us about how importing wild animals from the African savanna could benefit the Midwestern economy and maybe the environment. Imagine that you're in a car taking a road trip across the Midwestern United States. You glance out your window in boredom across the plains. 
Suddenly, movement catches your attention. You spot an antelope bounding across the dry landscape. It's being pursued by something with amazing speed. A black spotted yellow hut. A cheetah in Kansas. Does this sound crazy? Today, maybe. But if the authors of a recent scientific proposal called Pleistocene Rewilding have their way, there could be wild African animals in America in just a few years. From Stanford University, I'm Tom James. And I'm Kate Youngman. Tom and I first heard about rewilding a couple months ago. A friend mentioned it to us offhand. It was one of those classic, did you know, statements. This one was, did you know that they might bring large game animals from Africa and release them in North America? Turns out it's true. We were skeptical, but also curious. If somebody does release wild African animals in North America, I'd like to know about it before they get here. So we did some probing. What we found out made us question not only the route we want to take on our next road trip, but also the direction that man is heading in customizing the world to his every want and desire. Scientists in support of Pleistocene rewilding, which would mean introducing African species to the Midwest, picture rewilding as a win-win situation. We could save endangered species in Africa and profit from ecotourism in the United States. Save the world and make money? Sounds like the American way. Except for the part about wild cheetahs and elephants roving our neighborhoods. But maybe that's not so un-American after all. The idea of rewilding is summed up in an article by Josh Donlin that appeared in Nature magazine last August. Donlin is a graduate student at Cornell's Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. His article, Rewilding North America, explains that Pleistocene rewilding is a project to recreate the wild habitat of many animals that used to live here, in America, at a time when America had even more big predators than Africa. Donlin was interviewed on NPR's Science Friday soon after the Nature article came out. He described what our continent used to look like before humans showed up. Here's Josh. At 13,000 years ago, where North America was a very different place. We had our very own lions, cheetah, camels, and lots of lots of large mammals, not unlike Africa. In fact, it was more diverse in Africa 13,000 years ago. 13,000 years ago, our last ice age was ending, and so was the geological epoch called the Pleistocene Era. The animals that became extinct at this time are the ones that Pleistocene rewilding intends to re-establish. But as Donlin knows, even the most dedicated biologist can't just snap his fingers and make extinct animals reappear. So the idea of Pleistocene rewilding is for African animals to fill the niches left by the extinct North American animals. For example, our pronghorn antelope got its speed from years of predation by the American cheetah, which has gone extinct. Bringing the African cheetah into North America would restore this age-old game of cat and mouse. The introduction of the animals would be a gradual, step-by-step process. Here's Josh. By no means are we advocating backing up a, a van and kicking out a van full of cheetah back onto the landscape. The first step, which is already underway on a few Texas ranches, is to restore the critically endangered Bolson tortoise. Next, they would try introducing some bigger animals to the United States, African herbivores such as camels, asses, and feral horses. The biggest step comes last, bringing in controlled numbers of cheetah, lions, and elephants. They would have to start slow, testing the process on private land. But eventually, Donlin hopes these animals would have a real niche in our landscape. 
For example, an elephant's trampling on the land helps control local populations of weeds and rodents. Without large animals, these populations get out of control faster than you can say rats and dandelions. <laughs> Besides really good road trip stories and first-hand did-you-know tales, restoring the cat and mouse game and the biological diversity that goes with it has the potential to enrich life on a global and species-wide scale. To give a mechanical answer to the question of the meaning of life, each species that exists on Earth has some function, whether it's an animal that grazes to prevent the overgrowth of plants, or plants that absorb greenhouse gases and slow global warming. As for the function of humans, well that question is central to this whole idea of rewilding. Whether we have the right to interfere or the responsibility to protect our planet, human impact is ever on the rise. But interfering with nature certainly isn't the only big question mark in this rewilding scheme. Large carnivores are dangerous and don't always get along with people. Donlin proposes the American Midwest for an experiment in rewilding because Pleistocene animals lived in that region, but also because the human population there is actually declining, along with the farming economy. Donlin and his colleagues hope that struggling farmers might benefit from the ecotourism interest that rewilding could create. He also admits that they would need some really tough fences. For some expert opinions on human-animal interaction, Kate and I headed to the San Francisco Zoo. But before we even got to meet the keepers who work with the animals all day long, we ran into some visitors who had a few stories of their own. rainy day, really blustery, with stray branches flying everywhere. We thought the place was going to be deserted until we ran into a young couple admiring a hefty rhinoceros. It was sort of a shock that any visitors would be at the zoo on a day like that, but I suppose that tells you something about our cultural value of wild animals. But not content just to suppose, we went over to talk to the couple. Our venture was outstandingly rewarding. Brian and Jennifer were on a vacation from Indiana just the place where ranchers and farmers might soon be neighbors with cheetahs and elephants. They were impressed by how close you could get to the animals at this zoo. The other ones, there's lions, tigers, and bears in all the other zoos, but this is as close as most of the other ones you go and you know, you'll see a foot hanging out of a cave or something. This is as close as they ever have been to them, really. We asked them if the average Midwesterner would be receptive to an idea like rewilding. Or, probably not. I'm yeah. different than most of them. They probably all... <laughs> yeah, they think like I do. Yeah. I mean, I grew up with, like, a lot of my family is farmers, and... I mean, their livelihood is from raising cattle and, you know, using horses. Because we live out in Amish country. It's mostly crops now. It's all in corn and beans. Lions don't want anything to do with corn and beans. <laughs> I don't know. I just don't see that it would work very well. But the husband, Brian, seemed to be a fan of the idea. Yeah, I wouldn't mind. I like him. I'd like to see him around. They don't cause that big of trouble in Africa. They get along. And he seemed to think that some places in the Midwest would be ideal for an experiment in rewilding. Really, even like South Dakota. I went on a hunt in South Dakota last year. Yeah. Have you ever been to South Dakota? I have not, actually. There is nothing in South Dakota. You could turn anything loose in that state and nobody would care. <laughs> <laughs> it is. After visiting the rhinoceros exhibit, we headed up to the lion cages. We were impressed by the sheer size of the creatures, and the fact that they were sleeping soundly. 
Inside the Tiger Building, we met a caretaker named Lori, who had worked with carnivores for years, including as a wildlife biologist in Alaska. We asked her about human-animal interactions at the zoo. Even the smallest things, like cell phone pictures, were a problem there. But with the cell phones, everybody's reaching forward as far as they can to get the picture, and they're not really even thinking about what they're doing, but um, by them doing that, they're they're, you know, just making it more uncomfortable for, for the cats that are in here. So we kind of have to constantly remind people. Lori was interested by the idea of rewilding, but based on her years of experience with big cats, saw the enormous scope of the project a bit daunting. She had spent the last few years of her life fully occupied by taking care of these animals when they had less than 100 square feet of space to run around in. She had trouble imagining a situation in which the caretakers would have significantly less control over the animals and their effect on the environment. They're not going to manage the breeding population the way it needs to be managed. And, you know, why would you introduce an animal here that, quite frankly, doesn't belong here? I mean, even the wolves have a difficult time surviving here. And when they do take over, start taking over the populations, um, then the, you know, then the coyotes are pushed out, you know. So I, I just honestly don't know how that could ever work. She was also concerned that the local people, such as farmers and ranchers, would never accept a plan like this. But, but at the same time, it's like we can't even restore a wolf, you know. We can't even restore a grizzly bear in California, you know. It's like how on earth would we ever convince you know, ranchers and, and you know, th that we're going to restore another carnivore. I mean, they, you know, they don't even want to coexist with what, what does exist out there. Almost everyone we talked with at the zoo cited some disaster involved with bringing a non-native species into an ecosystem. Here's Dave, a caretaker at the zoo's African exhibit. Like in Australia, they had like that severe rabbit problem, and those were all rabbits brought over to Australia, and um, you know, so you don't want to have another problem like that. Rabbits are not native to Australia. They were introduced in the mid-1800s partly for sport hunting, and proved themselves worthy of the expression, multiply like rabbits. A rabbit plague of almost biblical proportions ensued. The Australians tried fencing, hunting, and more than one contrived virus, which the rabbits developed an immunity to. The rabbits are still there, in much smaller numbers, but still wreaking havoc with the nation's agriculture and wildlife. From pigs to dandelions, America has seen its own share of introduced species. They've carried with them a mix of pros and cons, medicinal value along with disease, variety for your dinner plate, as well as competition for native species. Donlin admits, and there's definitely potential for unexpected ecological consequences from a, an invasive species context. But he responds to critiques of rewilding based on these issues in his Nature article. He writes, Existing lions and cheetahs are somewhat smaller than their extinct counterparts. For example, camelus is different from camelops. Same is relative, however, as illustrated by the highly successful reintroduction of peregrine falcons in North America. Captive-bred birds from seven subspecies on four continents were used, yet there were no differences among the birds in subsequent breeding success, and subspecies now serve as a collective proxy for the extinct Midwestern peregrine falcon. Rewilding has gotten pretty controversial reports from the press so far. 
One newspaper that has responded to the gravity of Rewilding's ambition is the Christian Science Monitor. We spoke with chief editorial writer Clayton Jones, who's had some experience with large wild beasts himself. Well, speaking of real wild animals, got killed by an elephant in Sri Lanka one time, so there you have it. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah, this, this bull elephant picked up a big branch and threw it at me. Clayton and the Christian Science Monitor see rewilding as a jumping off point to talk about how humans handle nature. Well, rewilding is, is a great way to talk about what we mean by wilderness so that when we vote for and act on things like the Endangered Species Act, we know exactly what we're talking about. Rewilding could help save Africa's endangered species, which might otherwise disappear in the next century. As we consider what to do in this situation, Clayton urges us to think forward instead of backwards. To think about it in terms of what kind of nature do we want to create uh, rather than what kind of nature there was in the past. The real issue gets back to defining what humans' role in nature should be. We found an American definition of wilderness from the Wilderness Act of 1964. Wilderness is defined as an area where the earth and its community of life are untrammeled by man, where man is a visitor and does not remain. Well, the second part of that is easy enough to understand. If somebody lives there, it's not wilderness. The first part, untrammeled by man, is a little trickier. The author of the Wilderness Act defined untrammeled as not being subject to human controls and manipulations that hamper the free play of natural forces. But humans are a natural force. To take them out of the equation is naive and impractical at best. Pleistocene rewilding challenges the framework of the existing definition of wilderness. It attempts to move back the conservation benchmark from 1492 all the way back to 13,000 years ago, before man ever began hunting the larger animals to extinction. And so we're arguing that we need to think farther back than Columbus. Right now, in, in conservation biology, the de facto benchmark, that is, what we're trying to restore to, is 1492. But the idea of rewilding is not to define wilderness as late Pleistocene North America. Rather, it shows to what extent the political and cultural concept of wilderness is arbitrary and contrived. There is no longer any true wilderness on Earth, by the Wilderness Act definition. Almost every corner of the Earth has been affected directly by man's presence, if not indirectly by changes in the atmosphere and climate caused by humans. The concept of wilderness is inherently ironic and contradictory. It is on this ground that the idea of rewilding draws the most logical support. If nature is constantly dynamic and changing, if wilderness is a construct, if nothing is truly wild, then we are left with a choice of either neglecting the diversity of the environment around us or taking an active role in choosing the nature that we want to survive. Think back to your road trip in Kansas. This time, your grandkids are with you, fighting over a bag of Cheetos in the back seat. Will they recognize a real cheetah if they see it in the plains beside them? Or is a cheetah just a cartoon logo for snack chips? The Wilderness Act of 1964 is up for renewal. When we redefine our political definition of wilderness, we should accept that preservation is no longer a sensible goal. As Donlin reminds us, 
a hands-off policy will not prevent extinctions or maintain our current level of biodiversity. In the last 13,000 years, humans have risen to the top of the food chain. Short of climbing back down, we need to acknowledge how much control we actually have over wilderness and use this power to create nature as we see fit. Maybe if we aim to save endangered species, boost the economy, and glorify the wilds of America, we can get a little closer to one of these goals, or all three. Ultimately, it's about survival, ours and the animals. Rewilding could make that survival a little grander for us all. Dave, the caretaker at the zoo, explains why the time and place to do this is ours. Oh, it'd be a great idea, yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to do it in Africa because for, you know, reasons of war and because people need food and, you know, they, you know, that's a lot of food right there. So, you know, you can't really blame people for wanting to survive, you know, even though they're endangered species, you know. So it's going to be harder and harder to keep them in Africa. And it would be a shame to see them go extinct, so I'm all for it. Dave is right. You can't blame people for wanting to survive. The world is a beautiful place, but it's not perfect. War and famine are pretty hard to get rid of. Natural disasters are even harder. Extinction crises? Well, we're finding out. For every new cure, life brings a new ailment. We know that's part of the game. Life is dynamic and controversial, not static. So better the world for the sake of the world, not for the sake of bettering it. Animals in the wild can change our culture and our landscape, like the salamanders and the cheetahs we heard in the first two stories. But many of us who live with animals as pets know that they also play a big role in our everyday lives. Pets can even be the deciding factor on who we choose to spend our lives with. Here's Tracy Shepard. months ago, a friend of mine was engaged to the almost perfect man. He was tall, handsome, witty, and compassionate. Their wedding was to be in June, under the stars at the bride's father's estate. One night, as the couple lay in bed, they eagerly discussed their plans for a life together. My friend was enthralled by how perfect they seemed to be for one another, as her love listed all the things he wished for their future. Two kids, one of each sex, a spacious apartment in New York City, a summer share in the Hamptons, and a dog. A dog? The engagement was promptly canceled. As my friend later told me, there was no way that she was going to marry a dog person. Okay, clearly that was not the only reason the young lovers broke off their union, but it was a major factor. Pets mean a lot to people. We're all familiar with the extreme versions of canine or feline lovers. The crazy cat lady down the street. The biker with a gang of five Rottweilers. And chances are, though hopefully to a lesser degree, you too are a dog person or a cat person. While there are many neutral parties, most people prefer one species over the other. What is it about cats and dogs that is so mutually exclusive? It is partially superficial. I love both species, but have always been more of a cat person myself. 
I think that dogs are just too dirty and smelly. I can't enjoy cuddling with a dog when they always reek of, well, dog. But aesthetics aren't everything. There is a far deeper psychology behind the different love for Rex and the love for Whiskers. Beyond my personal olfactory preference, there are basic character traits that will indicate if one would opt for a cat or dog companion. Dogs are simple. They love you all the time. Nothing gives them greater pleasure than a pat on the back, and they just about soil themselves with glee every time you pick up a stick. Dogs are extremely loyal and caring animals. Cats are different. Most of the time, they couldn't possibly give a damn about you. You have to work for their affection, and every once in a while, your toil will be rewarded with a purring head rub or a fuzzy creature napping in your lap. These displays are all the more precious for their rarity. So perhaps that's it. Dog people may like a low-level reward of love constantly, while cat people prefer the unbridled joy of a rare display of affection. This could explain why dog people seem to be content all the time, whereas cat people are more emotional, often on a drama-filled roller coaster of agony and ecstasy. Dog people float quietly on a placid sea, rolling their eyes at the histronics exhibited by their cat-preferring peers. Dogs are Prozac. Cats? Cocaine. Or maybe it's just the smell. All I know is, my friend alternately painfully sobs and laughs aloud with happiness at the memory of her lost engagement. And the last time I saw her dog-loving ex-fiancé, he was just smiling, content as ever. With a perspective, this is Tracy Shepard. Sometimes the line between fact and fiction is not perfectly clear. And sometimes a story is told many times before it reaches us. And maybe some of the details get changed along the way. Hilton Obenzinger, a professor of writing and literature at Stanford, tells our next story. It's a little bit like Noah's Ark, only told in reverse. And like many stories, whether it's true or not seems to be less important than the telling of the story itself. The way the story came to me was from somebody who heard it from uh, a kid. So it's already been through a process. So I had to kind of uh, imagine the recreation of it and also to frame it um, and uh, to um, look at the insights that students had told me about their responses to the tsunami and the bigness of it and how people seemed so uh, inconsequential and the idea at various times that something like an elephant or a dog or, you know, the way animals can be so friendly uh, to humans uh, when, you know, as the kid in the story says, it just doesn't seem like they ought to be. Dear Mr. Obenzinger, I am a student at Los Altos High School and you came to my English class during Writer's Week. You had read your story about hearing a loud quack and thinking that God was a duck, and you described your project of collecting the stories of people who realize something surprising or learn something new and collecting what you remember, too. I didn't want to say anything in class, but I have a story you might find useful in your collection. I hope you can use it. You see, I survived the tsunami that devastated Thailand and Indonesia and the other parts around the Indian Ocean. 
That's a big story everyone's heard about, I know. But the story I want to tell you is one that a lot of people don't know about, and it's a little bit odd. I was with my parents spending Christmas vacation at a resort in Thailand. There were elephant rides at this resort, and I loved to watch all nine of the elephants. As many as eight people would climb up one of these giants, and they would lumber off into the forest and onto the beach and over to the lagoon and back again, with everyone on their backs rolling from side to side. And then they would be done, and all the passengers would step off onto a little platform and climb down to the ground. When they weren't giving rides, the elephants would stand around, chained to little posts, and kids would come by to feed the elephants peanuts and stuff. It makes a big impression to see nine elephants all lined up in a row, throwing their trunks from side to side. I loved it. The morning after Christmas, I was watching the elephants. Besides snorkeling, this was my favorite part of the trip. All of a sudden, four of them that had just gotten back from giving rides got very agitated. I thought this was a treat, rampaging elephants, at least from a safe distance. The handlers hadn't chained them up yet, and they bumped into the other elephants to help them tear free of, from their posts, and then all nine of them stampeded up the little hill. This was awesome. I didn't know what to think, and neither did the handlers, who yelled after the beasts and did everything they could to make them come back. Instead, the elephants gathered up on the hill, and they started bellowing with their trunks, and it was so loud and so demanding that people at the resort started to run up the hill to see what they were bellowing about. That's when, looking down from the hill, we saw how the water had pulled back so far from the beach, how weird that was. And then we could see the gray line in the distance come closer and closer as the wall of ocean raced to the shore. The elephants kept trumpeting and more people raced up the hill, but when finally the tsunami hit, not everybody had listened to the warning of the elephants. The force of the wave was astounding. It seemed to fill up the sky and destroyed everything in front of it with such huge power that it made you feel that you were helpless and everyone was filled with fear and horror. But we were the safe ones on top of the hill. The elephants had known that the wave was coming and they had saved us just because we were curious about why they were bellowing so much. When the water receded, the elephants charged down the hill, and I could see them pick up little kids with their trunks and put them on their backs and then run back up the hill. They did this over and over, and when they could find no more kids, they started to help with the adults, pulling them out of the debris and lifting them up on their backs and carrying them up to the hill. They ended up rescuing over 40 people, and then they carried up the bodies of three dead grown-ups and one little boy. I had never seen elephants move so fast and they seemed so graceful, stepping through the wreckage, scooping up one survivor after another. The elephants wouldn't allow their handlers to jump up on their backs again until all of this was done. And when they began to use their trunks to pull apart the trees and other debris, going to work as they always did with people mounted on their backs, slowly and methodically hauling away logs and boats, they were beautiful and solemn in their hugeness and devotion. Anything about the tsunami is an amazing story, I know, but I felt very special to be there at such an event, to survive, and to see what the elephants did. When I saw more of the wreckage around Phuket, and especially when I saw the films on TV of all the other places and the videos of the huge wall of water, I felt that I had really seen something, and I was so lucky. I knew how powerful nature was, how big the universe was, and how little humans are. In fact, humans are puny but we think we have big heads. We think we're so special, but we can be swallowed by a wave in an instant, just like that. 
These are just words I know, but the feeling is something else. Well, what you know is deep inside of yourself. When you stand right next to the hugeness, you change the way you look at things. It's not just that I'm more serious now, or I'm afraid, or I've become a religious fanatic. It's something more. I know that I don't know. Maybe I would have learned that just from the tsunami, but seeing the elephants mixed it up and made everything even more complicated. They're so big and so powerful themselves, and yet they came to the help of us pitiful humans. Why did they help us? In all the bigness of nature, and in all that not caring, and the way humans get tossed around like twigs, it's not as if nature was mean or malicious. It just does its work, and people don't really count. But in all of that, there was the possibility that elephants could love humans, the idea that animals could feel sorry for us, and especially after all the terrible things we do to them, how could such a thing be? And can love be more powerful than a giant wave? Sincerely, Kevin. story today is a poem by Troy Jollimar. And it reminds me that just observing animals can transform the way we understand the world. They can also transform the way we understand ourselves. Could, could watching fireflies transform your philosophy? Fireflies. As if they could be summoned by a word, one you might have spoken, or perhaps misspoken. It's been known to happen. In the mist-charged air, 
the blue lead-tinted tinge of not quite remembering that is early evening. They appear. Live embers, greenish gold, tiny skyriders. Light forgers, within whose delicate chambers the elements of a cold flame are brought together. The wind breathes them. The rigid stars above envy the way their nervous constellations make and then remake themselves. It is perhaps some certain grade of silence they await, or some precise earth tilt, some just so slant of the sun's declining final rays that sets the temperature that sends the call that brings them out. And suddenly they are everywhere, the air, the bushes, the sluggish river water, the eyes of people you pass, nodding, then stop to wonder whether they meant, as you did, by your nod, to acknowledge the little lamps, or something else altogether. The bugs themselves seem to acknowledge nothing, but go on blinking in their binary code, on, off, one, zero, poised, a flutter, between two thoughts, two possibilities, each one desiring our belief, though they cannot both be true. Today's program was produced by Jonah Willingans, the director of the Stanford Storytelling Project, and myself. Thanks to Rebecca Jacobs and Kalani Leifer, Kate Youngman, Tom James, and Tracy Shepard for their audio essays. Thanks also to Hilton Obensinger. You can find more of his work in his forthcoming book, Busy Dying. You can also visit his website at www.obensinger.com. Thanks to Troy Jollymore. You can find more of his poetry in his book, Tom Thompson in Purgatory, which just won the 2006 National Book Critics Circle Award. You can also purchase his book on Amazon. And special thanks to Bob Smith for his help in the recording studio. Original music for the story on elephants was written and performed by the Stanford band Ambika. You also heard Hunt Alcott and Sam DeRuz, all of whose music can be found on Stanford iTunes. For their generous, generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts and the Center for Teaching and Learning and the Hume, Hume Writing Center. KZSU would also like to thank Jungle Printing for their generous underwriting support. Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every fabulous episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website at storytelling.stanford.edu. Tune in next week when we'll hear more stories about the animal kingdom, a documentary about Stanford's animal research facility, and a short story about one family's unusual relationship with their dead dog. For the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Bonnie Swift, 